You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production. Luke Van Rienen took up an opportunity as a contamination engineer as his first job after university. While he enjoyed it, something triggered him to want to niche down into water treatment as he believed Australia was a long way behind other countries in the way we treat contaminated land. In this episode, Luke explains what's required to function successfully as an engineer and emphasises the importance of time management and being organised to keep on top of projects. Luke Van Rienen, we've just discussed with you your football career, your high school, your university. Let's talk about your actual career as a civil engineer. After you finished university, what did you do next? I was employed by Environmental Earth Sciences as a contamination engineer at the time. So I spent about 18 months doing that. What we did was we went out, we took a bunch of samples, soil, water, whatever, in an area, uh, and we determined whether the you know, environment was contaminated. And if it was contaminated, how could you fix it up? Or what did you need to do to make it safe? You know, it was a pretty fun job, but what caused me to change what I was doing and go into water was the fact that uh, Australia is a bit behind the rest of the world in the way we treat contaminated land. Whereas, you know, they have pretty impressive technologies in Europe and the United States over here, we still tend to just dig it out and take it to a dump. So what are they doing in Europe then, or the States? Sort of other technologies, you know, that involve magnetism, heat treatment, other sorts of things like that. And they're probably more open to utilising groundwater treatment technologies as well. I just felt a little bit like we were quite often not getting to do what we probably wanted to do to save the land. Uh, and instead sort of just what was easiest. What sort of impact does that have on the land or on, on the situation going forward? If we don't correct these issues now, where could we end up? Australia is a big country, you know, which is why sometimes we're behind on things. We don't treat every little block of land because there's plenty more around. We are getting to a point where real estate within sort of city environments, for example, uh, is highly sought after. So it's cost effective to actually go and treat it so you can use it for something else. It depends what you're putting into the ground for one thing, like petrol stations. If you have any sort of leaking tanks or anything like that, you'll often find petrochemicals in the ground. One thing that's quite amazing is, you know, the way the world finds a way to heal itself. And, you know, we used to do these studies where we'd actually find that the bacteria in the ground would be breaking down the petrol as it leached out around the site and actually self-treated to consume that petrochemical. But then you do have other sites where you'll have something like PFAS, which uh, is carcinogenic. It's not cost-effective to treat. So they don't really know what to do with it. You basically dump it. Being sustainable in what we do is more important than ever because we are finding that we're starting to run out of arable land or you know resources. How do we go forward and, and make sure that's not an issue from this particular point? So obviously, you know, previous generations, it's happened. We kind of have to deal with that and do what we can. But we can draw a line in the sand and say, from this point, we're not going to make that same mistake. How do we correct it? The systems we use these days are far more well-tested and robust. Not just the the physical system, but just the whole uh, environmental protection sort of system. You know, we um, we have a lot more rules in place to protect the environment. So you could do whatever you wanted back in the day because there weren't any laws or rules. And a lot of the contamination we see is from old factories 
that have been around for a long time that they just didn't really care about the way they disposed of things. You know, these days you have to comply with a lot of um, legislation and rules and you can't dump. And I think just the knowledge we have these days has gone a long way to preventing that sort of thing. In saying that, we still don't have a, an emissions cap or anything in this country or, you know, there's a lot more that could be done to protect the environment. What would you like to see in that space then? What do you think is the, the most important issue that needs to be addressed here? Renewable energy is probably the, the biggest thing that we're looking at. You know, how can we offset energy? How can we reduce the energy that we're using? What sort of renewable energy can we use at this site? That's sort of one of the key things that's being addressed in the water industry currently. You know, Often it's done through what is probably the most popular one is solar energy. Treatment plants have a lot of open land, and that open land is a great place to put a big solar array, you know, and you can offset a huge amount of the power that your plant uses through solar energy. Waste energy is becoming a big thing. You know, if your plant produces enough biogas, for example, we have the right kind of digestion, you can harness that gas that's thrown off to run um, like a cogen facility instead of just sending this gas, flaring it off to the atmosphere or venting it. You can actually burn that and use it to power your plant um, or produce, you know, heat for process. Talk to me about life as a water engineer. What do you do? You come in nine to five? How do you fill your day? For me, it's more like 7.30 to 6. It's quite a long day. It's quite easy to do because I, I love what I do. The, the easiest way, I think, to describe what, what we do um, as design engineers or a design consultancy here at CMP is um, we basically assist um, a lot of our clients who might be uh, water authorities, contractors as part of DNC teams um, to design water infrastructure. The big things we work on are pipelines. It's surprising how much engineering goes into these these major transfer pipelines, even small pipelines. Treatment plants is another one. There's millions and millions of litres of wastewater that you can't just discharge to the environment. Um, and a key part of what we do is, um, you know, design and, and work on the upgrades and, you know, of um, wastewater treatment facilities so that we're not contributing to harming the environment. For you, is it coming into work and working on one project at a time or do you have several things going on? Multiple going on at any one point in time. We have to be you know, able to deal with ebbs and flows in the industry because you'll go through periods where there's a huge amount of work that comes in and you know everyone's over-resourced and then there'll be periods where it sort of drops down um, and you're under-resourced. But uh, yeah, I'll usually work on you know between six or seven jobs at a time in any one week. For example, currently I'm working on a treatment facility for an abattoir and then a number of pipelines and pump station projects as well. I would imagine in your space there'd be a lot going on and there there would be external forces at play with that, local councils and various other things as well. With so many projects on the go at any one time, how do you remain on top of all of them? One of the, the key skills that you learn from day one is how to manage your time. So one of the key things we have to do is when we're setting up projects or um, you know trying to trying to win work, we're talking to our clients about timelines and what is a reasonable timeline to complete a project. So to stay on top of all these things, it's basically managing your time quite meticulously to make sure that you can deliver. Time management is is particularly important, and project management, your project management skills, um, particularly in project planning uh, at the set out of the job. Um, and giving yourself sort of adequate float time and, and just time to, to take care of, of tasks is, is very important. 
What's the size of the team that you're working with there? So there's 60 people at the company. We only have three admin staff. Everyone else is an engineer. So let's say a team of 57 engineers. So if there's 57 engineers, how many of them would be involved in the projects that you're working on? There are projects that I can do with virtually no assistance. Um, Then there's projects that I'll need multiple subcontractors input and input from other engineers uh, within my company. And the level of input that you're getting is to do with the complexity of the project versus, you know, just sometimes you just need workhorses to sort of push things over the line. You've mentioned there that you, you do projects as part of a team. You also do get some individual ones as well. What do you prefer? The individual projects are not usually as big. You know, and, and one thing that's great in engineering is being able to work on big projects. At least I like them. Uh, there's a big sense of satisfaction when you finish them. When you see a treatment plant getting constructed, it's very satisfying. I also, I've always been a big fan of being part of a team. In your mind, what makes really good teamwork? Why do some just click? Some teams really do click and others just don't. And one of the key things there is communication. So communication is a key aspect, but it's also having different people in the team as opposed to all the same people in the team. And one of the key things that you know we've learned is that for a team to be very successful, you don't just need a whole bunch of good doers. You need good project initiators and you need good project finishers and you need people that are good at managing time. And then you have some people that don't necessarily need to be great at all that, but they're fantastic at the lateral thinking and nuts and bolts of things. So I think great teams are made up like a good recipe or a good meal. It's a whole bunch of different ingredients, not just the same people the whole way through. In that group that you've mentioned there, is there a a natural born leader, one that steps into that role of, of leadership amongst the entire team? There often is someone who does step into that role, but there can sometimes be multiple leaders within a team. What's difficult is when people fighting to be the the leader as opposed to just, I'm the project manager, so I'll be the leader of the team. And that's generally how that decision is made. When you have two people fighting for leadership, that can make things a bit difficult, I think. Have you found yourself in a leadership position before? Most of the time I've acted as as a project manager in the projects, yeah. What's your leadership style? I do like to get things done by deadlines. So I'm quite task and and time orientated, but I'm definitely not one of these um, domineering leaders. I like to ask people to do things as opposed to tell them to do them. In the course of your role now or university, wherever it may have been, has anyone taught you leadership or is it just something you've naturally picked up? It's probably come more naturally to me just through the course of my life and and what I've, you know, as a young football player, for example, I quite naturally took up the role as a leader, you know, leading by example. I think you find yourself being looked to as a leader. You sort of start developing those skills because you realise you're in that position. Um, I think you derive a lot of those skills as a younger person without actually knowing it. You know, it's unconscious. That being said, often people have sort of seen that in me and then they've sort of given me advice to assist. So I've definitely been taught a lot of the leadership stuff I know. And I also take it in from seeing other great leaders around me. Uh, Our three directors, for example, you know, they're three of the the best water engineers in the industry. Just seeing the way they deal with clients or they, they deal with, with their teams and you know, having worked directly under, under one of them for most of my career, I've taken on a lot of the advice and just the, the way he's treated me and, and, and run teams that I've been in that have been very successful. I've taken on a lot of that just 
you know, habitually. What are the sorts of things you'd like to see for the new generation coming through, for those younger workers who are going to be working on projects with you? What sort of skills do you want them to have? Well, it's what I like to call urgency, like an urgency to learn and get better. One thing I love to see in young people, and it gives me a lot of confidence and I I definitely prefer working with them, is when they show that same sort of sign of urgency because it lets me know they mean business. They want to become better. And if I'm telling them stuff, it's not going in one ear and out the other. It's sticking in their head. We seem to be picking up a lot of young people that have that that urgency. So it seems to be a common thing that not only I look for in young engineers. What's some advice there to those new generations of workers that are coming through? Um, ideas or suggestions you can you can give about what they need to have uh, in terms of skill set or attitude, mindset. One piece of advice, though, that I that I'd give to young people coming into you know, the sort of role that I would have come into as a young engineer, is to not be afraid to just put your head down and work, work hard, and not want too much too quickly. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is often there's a lot of young people that come in and they, you know, they say, oh, I want to be a project manager, or um, no, I want to run a team. And they're saying that from day one. One of um, the directors here, he gave me some great advice when I first started. He said, for your first two years, just put your head down and just work. Just design as much as you can. Put your hand up for every project you can get yourself onto. Talk to everyone you can. And the whole reason for that was to get a really good, solid basis that sets you up for your whole career. It might be two years of really hard work at the start where you're not, you know, you're not getting to lead teams and all that sort of stuff. But that two years gives you this basic engineering knowledge that then sets you up to be a team leader, it sets you up to manage projects, it sets you up to be a business development manager. You know, in the industry we're in, people say, you know, oh, it's not what you know, it's who you know and all that sort of stuff. And that does definitely ring true. But you can't sell your business, for example, if you don't know what your business is. And getting that good early baseline knowledge is critical, I think, for young people. That's some great advice there. Get in, bum up, work hard. Luke, thanks very much for uh, spending some time with us and having a chat. No, it's been fantastic. Thanks for having me. Luke loves seeing young kids come through that have a sense of urgency when it comes to completing tasks. In this context, urgency is not to be confused with pressure. It means having the motivation and confidence to work on projects efficiently, either individually or within a team. And if you can do that, you will succeed in your career. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series, a Salt Studios production.